research Yo, I'm shooting every shot like my name was Jack Reacher Incredible, indelible teacher Free speech, maximalist preacher Against the Jekyll Island creature Yo, I'm back, baby, watch There ain't no way to stop See me cooking up this bread Cause I'm rising to the top Never looking to be fed By a hand that isn't mine When I rhyme, I'm never dead Like I'm pervious to time Yo, intelligent design See me flying like a sparrow Started from the bottom Now I'm here like Darrow Yo, I'm harnessing the power Like Severo and the Howlers And I'm blunt with the truth But keep it pointed like an arrow Yo, I'm spitting fire on the mic Like I'm puking cayenne Pepper on the beat Like my homie Lucas Chayan Dapper when I'm speaking Freaking light it like a beacon Bleeping brighter when I sneak and throw you people in the deep end here on Galaxy Brains. <laughs> As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. Lucas Chayan from Galaxy Research. He will join us to talk about what's happening in the Solana ecosystem. Um, and of course, we'll check with our good friend, Bamnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, to talk markets and macro. Before I get to that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Wow, we're back, Phineas. We're back in the studio. Uh, last week, we were at PubKey NYC, my favorite venue, with good friends of ours, Nick Carter and Matt Walsh from Castle Islands on the Brink podcast for a live show. That was our first live show. Yeah, Galaxy Brain's first live show. What'd you think? I thought it was a lot of fun uh, and it was well attended. I mean, I think people really enjoyed it. You know, you get Nick. Nick is a funny guy and he's and, and Nick and Matt together are a great combo. I was very, you know, proud to uh, work with those guys and be up there with them because that we've talked about this. I don't want to belabor the point, but I love their podcast. I thought it was a really fun thing. James Safart from Bloomberg Intelligence joined us. Thomas Pacquia from uh, PubKey came up as well. And um, you can see that. It's on our feeds. It's on our YouTube channel now. It's Yeah, it felt like the community really coming out. Yeah. Like, you know, the New York scene was there in numbers and people participated, questions. And yeah, PubKey was a great host. What a fantastic venue. Amazing venue. Uh, awesome food and drinks there. I mean, it was just a good time. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what what do we think? We got to think of our next, you know, yeah, maybe, you, maybe you want to do it again? Yeah, maybe first pub key next, what, Yankee Stadium? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you felt good. You were you yeah. sort of emceed a lot, you know, it was, yeah. and and uh, I was curious to how you would enjoy it and it seemed like it was a good time. I thought it was a good time. Um, unfortunately, uh, for listeners who were not present, you don't get to hear the musical collaboration that Nick Carter and I did. Um, that For was live audiences only. Live audiences only. Um, so try to get out next time whenever that is. I mean, we, it's not on the schedule, but I think we're going to do it. I don't know. I thought it was fun. It was a good time. Everyone check that out. For now, let's check this show out. Let's get right into it with BIMNET. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, thanks for joining Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. Saw CPI came in soft. So uh, soft. What's the things are changing out here? They are. We talked about the little paradigm shift happening in, in the data. Last week we talked about it, yeah. Um, and so, you know, what we saw uh, from the CPI report was, you know, a decline in, in prices on, on a broad based way. I mean, the headline number came in flat. Um, the core CPI number came in at, at, at 0.2. These are all indicative of, of what we like to call a soft landing. Um, some of the components in particular that drove some of the weakness or the softening was you had owner's equivalent rent decline to like 0.4 month on month versus like 0.6. The services started to cool down a little bit. 
airline fares came came off. Um, energy prices have been cooling, um, not in the CPI, but uh, like if you just look at gas prices over the yeah. past nine weeks, they're literally down nine weeks in a row. Like crude, basically. Uh, or, yeah, yeah, but and, what and people gas. pay for at the pump. Oh, and wow. crude, crude's been down yeah, are as they? well. I don't really drive a lot anymore, no, so I don't really I know. think the national average is probably low three. Is there even a gas station in New York's in Manhattan? There's like five. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, it's it's it, it's tough to get yeah. a sense. But uh, high level, it seems like the prices But that's are, important. The gas prices are true metric. Really for yeah, Americans. No, absolutely. Like, People spend money on that. It costs like, money. Yeah, absolutely. And why we strip it out because it's volatile. Like, it's it's absurd. It's <laughs> that nonsense. Thing, like, the way they even measure this, right? the inflation, it's like you always care about the rate of change, not the price level. Like, right. it, it, it messed up. And, yeah. and, like, you just, you have any idea how far behind the curve that those figures were when inflation was like 13, 14, 15% and they're telling you it was only 8 like, the figures are absurd, and, like, you need to adjust them for the 21st century, and we don't because it's uh, the Fed and all these people are just an academic institution that's been around doing the same stuff, they same keep it the models, same, and basically yeah. for the past 40 years. And now that they missed catching the inflation story, they're more focused on, like, anecdotal evidence and high-frequency points. But high level, it's, yeah. it's still nonsense, yeah. and you can parse the data however you want. Uh, but... I think the most important thing that, you know, the market should really think about is the last mile in terms of getting inflation uh, under control is, is typically the toughest. That's what history tells us. And given the price reaction that we've had in, in markets since that CPI report, I think that's abundantly clear. Just to give you an idea, uh, yesterday was one of the uh, largest uh, loosening of financial conditions um, of the year. Um, and I think going back a couple of years, but high level, I mean, just to give you like a, a couple of a bits of information, like the Russell was up almost five and a half percent yesterday. Wow. Oh, like literally it's best that's, performance that's of the day of the year. Yeah. Right. And, and NASDAQ's, you know, back to trend highs, almost S&P's 4,500 and change. Um, you know, uh, bonds have, have rallied to you know, tens of 450. There's inflows into high yield bond ETFs. And so what you're seeing is folks going really out the risk curve and buying, you know, junk going out the uh, risk curve in terms of duration and buying, you know, longer dated paper. Um, and that's kind of what happens when the market gets a sense that the Fed's turning a bit or the data's turning a little bit. And what is that? That's inflationary. Not deflationary. I see. This and is why so, the last mile is so hard. Because, yeah. because, because it becomes such a push-pull. Yeah, you get and the like, good news on inflation, which makes people go out on the risk curve, which can increase inflation. Correct. So it's, uh, yeah. the mo Most directly, it's like uh, you had mortgage rates drop recently by like to the tune of like 25, 30, uh, probably a little bit more now, 30, 35 basis points. And once you had those mortgage rates drop, what, what happened? Mortgage applications shot up. Right till the highest level since June. Right, so what's going to happen if mortgage rates fall? Oh wait, people are going to be like, oh maybe it's housing market's going to tighten again. Everyone's going to jump pile in. Right, <laughs> and so it, it becomes such a a push pull. And and what we have to keep in mind is that like one of the things that people don't even talk about that's a, a huge thing is who's going to be doing layoffs in, in these large multinationals when their stock prices are close to the dead highs. Wait, you, you're going to feel the need to really, like, let go of, like, 10% of your workforce when your stock is, you know, within 5% of, of all-time highs? <laughs> like, it's, it's so difficult. to And, and yeah. these people at the Fed, they're so concerned about breaking things. Like, when 10s were breaking the 5%, like, everybody knows the fiscal situation is messed up. 
right? Like yeah. you, you gotta let that stuff run. I think if you want to get back to like some some place that's reasonable, but right now, you know, what it kind of seems like is risk markets are gonna rip. You know, people long risk assets and bonds are, are gonna do well. That's gonna be inflationary. Nobody's gonna get laid off. And three months from now, we're gonna be like, oh, uh, inflation's back. Inflation's back. Yeah. This is the big fear. This, this is, is the Paul Volcker era fear. Yeah, they the, did this. They did a whole cycle. I forget how high they don't it got. have and then the they courage back, they to cut. really kill inflation. Yeah, which would be what raise it even further. Keep for raising six plus percent. Not higher for longer. For, no. Higher for longer and even higher from here for longer. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I know Jay Powell is very concerned about that. I mean, but apparently no, not but enough. So is your point. Like no, not concerned enough. Yeah. I mean, the market. The Paul market's Volcker not even his, buying it. There are hundred basis points of cuts. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To I was looking after the CPI came out yesterday. The cuts. I think literally the day before. It was some uh, 25 bips of cuts by May. Yeah. But still even some increase priced in before then. And now, that's and now it's just flat and down cuts cuts in March. Again, according to this is with them, how the so, market yeah. is pricing it. Um, 25, I think 28 bips of cuts when I looked this morning in March is what the market is expecting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's absurd to that, me. that seems. But you have to price in some kind of like. You know, premium or discount because they they'll go fifty or a hundred when they go. Right, right, right. And the risks are. But it is a disconnect between. I guess higher for longer doesn't mean no cuts. It just means that we might stay overall higher than so, usual for longer. Correct. But, so, what, but it is a disconnect between the market and the Fed's language. Right? Correct. The, correct. The market is basically calling the Fed's bluff. They think. I, I agree. So here here's why that. Uh, friction exists is one for the effective implementation of monetary policy the fed needs less cuts baked into the market because they need money to flow out from the very front end into the rest of the curve because we're issuing so much debt and paper yeah. that they need people to buy it people won't buy that stuff if it has a lot of cuts baked in they'll just keep the money in the in the front right. stuff and so for the smooth implementation of monetary policy, they actually need less cuts priced in. Um, in addition, right, if you're the Fed, you need to preserve optionality. You need to preserve the option of hiking again, right? You don't want to shock the market with a hike. And so that's why they're constantly on the more hawkish side, it feels like. Yeah. But the other thing that you're pointing out as well is, you know, the where where is neutral inflation now? More and more, it seems like the uh, inflation expectations and realized inflation um, is is kind of hovering around this three percent area, instead the low threes, instead of this two percent target. Right, right. And so there may be a rebasing of just general level of inflation happening across you know the economy in terms of a quote unquote like new normal. Yep. Right. And that's what you're seeing in some of the inflation expectation data as well. Like the UMish, which is really volatile, and you got to caveat it a lot. But anyway, those like one-year inflation expectations are like on a 4%. And so, and people that have gotten used to just higher and higher prices, they get accustomed to it. And they're like, oh, time for a raise at your end as well. Like, and it becomes entrenched. And so the fear is that, you know, inflation might be entrenched around 3 to 4% now, which means that, interest rates are still too low in that context. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I see all the soft pieces of data turning in the economy. You know, uh, there's like a freight crisis. There's the, 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 the I saw the, freight the, and truck, truck driver. Someone had the chart of the truck driver yeah. layoffs and like the only times it has gone negative, it's been a recession 100% of the time or something. Yeah. yeah. No. And, and then also, I mean, just anyone in the lower income quartiles, 
right? They are getting eaten away at by just the, the high yields, yeah. right? And they, they just don't have enough disposable income to, to survive in this kind of environment. And then you get trapped in a debt cycle and you're seeing, you know, uh, non-performing loans tick up and like default rates of like lower credit score people tick up and stuff. And so yep. that's where the pain is in, in, the, in the economy right now. And there is, right pain. And they, there is and these pain. are folks that don't have investable money, right? So yeah. they're not able to hedge by owning, you know, assets, assets that, that by, even by buying the yielding debt, right? So they're just, they're just seeing it at the pump, at the supermarket, right? At the retail stores, mm-hmm. when they travel for holidays, like that, they're bearing the brunt, right? This is why we often say that inflation is like a tax on the poor primarily, right? Exactly. Wealthy people can pay 5% more for their food. Yeah, <laughs> like wealthy not... people are earning 5% on their checking account and their 401ks right. are back to close to trend highs. <laughs> right. Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, my friend, thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. Let's go now to our guest, Lucas Chayen from Galaxy Research. Lucas, welcome back to Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about Solana. It's an iconic and technologically differentiated blockchain, which is one of the reasons I've always been interested in it. Unlike Bitcoin and ETH, it is not an Ether. It's not pursuing a scaling by layers methodology or, or modularity sort of design it is the sort of the iconic monolithic blockchain yeah yeah and you so it's one reason i've always been interested in it but also you were just at breakpoint their big annual conference what what was it like what were your impressions yeah i mean so breakpoint is the annual solana conference that's held once a year it was in amsterdam this year um i personally was very impressed um you know i think we're we're in an environment where people are starting to get a little bit more interested in crypto more generally, and you could really feel that there was an energy there, not just from you know existing people working in Seoul, but people outside the ecosystem who were starting to notice that maybe there's some real activity going on here. Um, I think for me, like the three major components I look for in any chain to see if it can continue to grow and build products that people want are you know what is the developer community like, what is the social layer like, and then what's the technology like and. I think for Solana, you've got a very differentiated tech approach. Um, you know, it's a monolithic, or people are calling it integrated chain right now. Um, it's It's got a very different narrative from something like Ethereum and Bitcoin because they're specifically saying, listen, we're focused on execution and scalability above all. Bitcoin is a store of value. Ethereum could be a high value settlement layer. We're gonna be where people build products and where those products can be cheap enough and fast enough that a lot of consumers wanna use it. So. Um, I think collectively Solana's got that differentiated tech. It's got a very devoted and committed developer community. That was very evident while I was there. And what, what you what you hear talking to a lot of these teams, which I think is important, is is like for them, this is really just the beginning. You know, they they feel like in in the wake of everything that's happened over the past two years that Solana has really been underappreciated for the developments that have happened on chain and the type of products that teams are building and and they're angry and they're hungry and, and they want to prove people not just that, you know, Solana is a good chain, but that Solana is a chain where only certain products can be built and they need to be built on that. Interesting. Chain. So hasn't Solana had major technology problems? I mean, I, I remember seeing it seemed at some points it was like every week there was an outage. Yeah. When the whole blockchain basically went down. Yeah. Is that still true? I mean, I, I don't follow it. So, I mean, like, isn't that, a, that was a problem. Is it still a problem? Like, Yeah. So there's definitely been massive improvements. So over the past, you know, we're, we're coming up on now three quarters where Solana's no, had no performance degradation, no downtime issues. And that's, I think, a huge milestone for the Solana ecosystem. 
And uh, what, what's interesting to me is it, it's not just that, like, there's not a lot of activity, so the network's having problems. They have implemented tangible updates that are improving what, the network. What do they do? Um, stake-weighted QoS. So basically, depending on the amount of stake that you have, it increases your chance of being able to include a block. That helps deal with spam issues. Quick, it's another way of basically throttling all these bots that are spamming validators so that, you know, they don't get overloaded and they don't shut down. Um, you have local fee markets. You know, this this is really dealing with hotspot issues oh, and on Ethereum. Because that was one of the things is there was no fee market at all. And yes. so I remember looking at Solana's overloaded spam issues being like, gosh, if only someone had come up with a way to defend against uh, Sybil attacks. <laughs> oh, wow. It's fees. That's It's always been fees, right? Like always has been. It's, it's that's always how been Bitcoin fees. and Ethereum. That's how they all prevent spam, basically, right? They raise the cost of transacting. But it had no fee markets at all. So did they add, they added fee markets? Yeah, so they added localized fee markets, which is saying that on Solana, when, when a transaction happens, it points to exactly which state that it touches. And so as a result, they're able to parallelize their transactions. So instead of like Ethereum, where you only have like one thread of transactions coming through, on Solana, you have kind of four threads right now. And so say that you are trying to buy an NFT and there's uh, thousands of other people trying to buy that NFT. And then there's another person who's just trying to, you know, swap some tokens. The, and there's nobody else trying to swap those tokens. The people who are all trying to buy the NFT, they might see their fees spike because they're all trying to touch the same state. But the people who are trying to swap the tokens, they're not going to see any fee spike. So it, it really makes like discrete fee markets that prevents, you know, a hotspot in one area of the network affecting the whole yeah. network. I'm thinking of the, um, uh, what was the Bored Apes uh, token that they a launched? Um, Ape. Was it Ape? Yeah, when when they did the mint for Ape on ETH. Exactly. Just like destroyed the entire chain basically for that day. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and we saw actually earlier this year in May or so, there was there was a huge NFT mint going on at the same time that a major deepen protocol was bridging over or basically transplanting their whole protocol onto Solana. So they had a lot of activity too. A lot of activity. It was totally fine. So the, these are just then two separate threads occurring at the same time with different fee markets. Yes, exactly. And and right now it's four. And you know, over time, as hardware improves, could be more. Cost, it could be it could be a lot more. Um, I think you know, Solana TPS is that's like kind of one of the big value propositions. Say it's four hundred transactions per second. Um, th this past weekend, we started to see some considerable increase in on-chain activity. And what, what I was particularly impressed with is not only that the network was performing just fine, but we also saw TPS begin to move up. So it was at 400. It slowly started to creep up in the 500, 600 range. And then we were at some point seeing, you know, 600 to 700 plus in TPS. And it really just shows that, the, you know, the network can handle more. Over time, it's going to continue to be able to handle more. And this is really just the beginning. So the technology up have really, it seems, had an effect and are starting to work. So uh, it's it's exciting. I think it's quite interesting. I mean, there it, it's just a totally different technology, right? Yes. In the scheme of things, you know, the way you describe, you know, Bitcoin as a store of value, I would more say is maybe call it like a, mostly a monetary network. Yeah. Ethereum, as you said, high value settlement layer, which I think is right. I mean, if you look at the majority of DeFi and NFTs, all the biggest pools, the yeah. most valuable projects, they're all in Ethereum, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and to me, when I think of like Solana, um, one of the issues that I remember was, 
was originally the idea, or I don't know who promulgated this idea. Maybe you can tell us, but like that it was going to be like central limited order books on chain. Yeah. Right? That, that yeah. It was being NASDAQ built. on the blockchain. Yeah. Like yeah. Who, where did that come from? Was that what Anatoly said? Yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah. That was kind of Anatoly's original vision because he has, you know, he has this story about how he was like trading using like right. normal, uh, you know, traditional finance. But that can't happen with downtime. This is one of the Definitely. main issues, right? Like if you had money in a DeFi, let's say you had a loan, right? Yeah. And you're going to need to top up the loan perhaps. Um, because the, let's say the market moves against you and you got to put more collateral, but if the network goes down, yeah, you can't, right. And you end up literally getting rugged. Yeah. Um, and so that was a, a major reason I feel that there was like almost no assets in DeFi in Solana for a long time. Um, is it still like that? I mean, there, cause there's genuine risk there. Like yes. literally any, when, when do we think outages happen? Well, they typically happen during big market moves, right? Exactly. So like that's when it has to work and it, yeah. and it hadn't, uh, during some times. And I feel like that's a huge impediment for financial use cases on Solana. Definitely. I mean, even myself as, you know, a huge Solana user, like I, I don't want to feel at any moment that I might not be able to access my assets and use the chain. And so, um, I think as we've seen from, you know, this past weekend was a great test. We saw, you know, volumes on Solana pick up immensely. Solana DEX volumes this month are about to breach all-time highs, and we're less than halfway through the month. So um, that was a great test of the network, and there was really no degradation issues. And as I said, TPS actually increased. Over the next, you know, probably year or so, timeline's not exact, but um, we're also going to see a new client, a validator client come out called Fire Dancer. Yeah. And so this is a yeah. Jump Crypto's yes, technology, exactly. right? So this is a, there'll now be two but, yeah, clients. Two clients. There, there's the actually one from the currently, Solana Foundation or whatever. And yeah. The, there's yeah. two clients currently. Another one's by Gito Labs, and that's basically like an MEV client, and it's like 99% the same as Solana Labs. So I, I don't really consider it to be like a differentiated client, but yeah. technically there are two what, right so now. So what is, what is the Fire Dancer? Like, why, why is that more interesting than... Because basically Fire... I mean, the way that it's explained by Tolly and the Fire Dancer team is basically it's like they can now go back to all of like the quick design decisions that Tolly had to make when he was first making the Solana Labs client and optimize everything. So it's really increasing, you know, the soft, they're optimizing all the software of the current Solana Labs client. They're doing it with a completely different code base. So it definitely increases client diversity. Um, and as a result, they're showing that they can get much better performance from even, um, you know, lower grade hardware. So it has the potential to not only increase the performance of the network, but uh, also bring down costs for being a validator on the network, which continues to be a major criticism of the network because, you know, it is more expensive than- It's a hardware intensive exactly. validator requirements, right? Exactly. Weren't there also a lot of like big NFT projects exiting Solana? Like, yeah. which, which were those? I'm, I'm forgetting now. D-Gods. D-Gods was the main one, right? D-Gods was the main one, um, you know, they, it, it's funny. I mean, I, I honestly feel bad for them because literally their founder tweeted out like, "We're leaving Solana," and like, "People be careful. Solana's down." Not, or pe we're leaving Solana, and um, that day like almost marked the bottom for like the Solana network. So like, right, it was what it, like last spring. Or yeah, something exactly. Like that. Yeah. yeah. So you know they moved over to Ethereum and Polygon and. I, I think, you know, listen, they made that decision. I think part of it worked out for them. NFTs are highly volatile, so it's just difficult to manage those type of things. But I think actually what we're seeing right now is that the NFT ecosystem in Solana is showing, you know, a huge rebound and huge resilience. I think it's, you know, number three in terms of volume on a Crypto Slam I saw today. Um, I think if you look at kind of the top collections, it's it's not like... 
It's no longer just like scammy collections that have been minted in the past month. I think when you used to look at Solana NFTs, the top collections were usually, usually things that had been minted within a past few weeks. Right, know, there was no weeks. staying power. Exactly. Was, yeah. Now these are collections. I think all the collections were minted five months early, or earlier. All so, the top ones. All the top ones right now. And so, um, and and also they're, they're like, some of them are, you know, social brand plays, but some of them are actually like, product utility. They're related to marketplaces. They're related to centralized exchanges. So it, it's also a different type of NFT. That's interesting. And then finally, you also have this kind of innovation happening with these things called compressed NFTs, which is, you know, they've brought down the cost of yeah, minting NFTs. What is that? Basically, they figured out a way to like, um, you know, uh, they, they basically put like a Merkle tree on chain that contains like, you know, thousands to hundreds of so thousands what, of you NFTs. So you can deploy like a ton at once? You like, can deploy, yeah. I, I, I forget the exact cost off the top of my head, but it's something crazy. Like, you know, you can deploy like in a million NFTs for like $1,000 or less, you know, yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. And, and, and that number might not be exact, right? It, it could be a little less, a little more, but it's, it's a pretty crazy innovation. Do you think we're going to have millions of NFTs in this world that so, matter? Like, or, or some, by the way, yeah. I asked that quite skeptically. Yeah. However, I, some people would say like, depending on what types of NFT use case we're talking about, it could be absolutely yes. I, I think there are some really interesting use cases for it. I think one one where, one place we've already seen it work is for like D-PIN protocols that want to like make NFTs of like what the hotspots. What is D-PIN? A decentralized physical infrastructure okay. network. So something like a Helium or a Render where, um, you know, they have a ton of different people, or for Helium specifically, they have a ton of different people that have uh, these individual like wireless hotspots and okay. they were able to make NFTs of each every and every one of those using compressed NFTs. Got it. Um, um, yeah. I, I, I think, oh yeah, sorry. I was just going to say like, the, I, okay, yes, Helium, I'm recalling this project. And I'm thinking about. It. I went on uh, Saul Kadir's podcast, Unlayered. Yes. They they were talking about this, and I was very critical of this concept. As you should be. As you yeah, should be. Yeah, I think what I was saying. So so this is this is what like an alternative internet connectivity, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Like, oh, Mobile phone. Yeah, plans. we can bring like you know phone plans to people that can't get them, or yeah. like or, or more cheaply. But I was like, doesn't literally everyone on Earth have a cell phone? Like, isn't like it the most one of the most ubiquitous technologies? You yes. could literally like buy a SIM card in the airport in in like Nairobi and walk <laughs> into the desert and it will the cell phone will work. It like, it, like who needs this? Is it, what I'm saying. You know, it's 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 not clear yet, but I mean that said, like a five dollar mobile plan is pretty cheap. You know, so they're offering five dollar mobile plans. I think in Miami right now it's pretty cheap. And I, I also just think that is cheap. To be clear, I use a that, major carrier and yeah, it's much more expensive. It's, than it's that. cheap. And 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 what what I think is interesting about that mechanism is what they're doing is they're saying, all right. We're gonna our bat like we're gonna use the helium network to power your mobile phone, but every once in a while we might not have coverage. So we'll fall I think they fall back on T Mobile network. But what they then do is they can track that. And whenever they fall back on T Mobile, they can then incentivize people, like they'll increase the amount of rewards you get for hosting a hotspot in that area where the T-Mobile network had to be used. It's like Uber. Yeah, so it's a, so it's a great, exactly, it's a great way of actually building this network out over time. Because I agree right now, like, is it, at, like, do I want to have a Helium network in the United States powering my phone? No, I want, like, something that's going to be covering me every there. But it, if over time they can incentivize people to truly build out this network, I think I think it'd be effective. So, well, so yeah. I interrupted you. You're talking about compressed NFTs yeah. and, and, like, the, the – so, for, okay, your Helium hotspot thing might have a use case for this. Were there yeah. others that you wanted to mention? I think the other interesting one is just thinking about NFTs as being things of an abundance instead of, like, very limited supply. And I think there's room for both. And and, and one, one – one 
one use case that really stands out to me is if you're like a YouTube streamer and um, you know you're 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 a gaming streamer. Every day you play a game and you want to reward people who aren't just watching your YouTube but are watching the live stream. Maybe you start you know rolling out compressed NFTs and and on like previously you'd have to pay you know thousands of dollars to do that. It's just not worth it. Now you're paying $10 to drop, you know, what, 100,000 100, yeah. NFTs to people. And it's very marginal cost to you. And it's a great way to just drive user engagement. So I do see use cases there. Obviously, like, people are going to, a lot of people like to say NFTs should be really valuable. I think this is showing, well, maybe there's a use case where NFTs are just very cheap collectibles that people get for being loyal followers and things like this. And if you have a way to cheaply distribute it, I mean, it suddenly becomes viable. Interesting. When I think of some of the stuff that's been happening on Solana. Yeah. And so we talked a little bit about DeFi and there's some struggles there, but I guess you're saying volumes are starting to pick up. Yeah. Um, are we going to get like the the club, the centralized club? Like, is it still the net or like, is the whole sort of vision changed or? No, no. Is that there's... still a thing, the NASDAQ on chain or whatever you were saying? Yes, that that is happening in real time right now. There's a number of, you know, clubs already active on Solana. Um, I think there's actually some great research coming out right now about like capital efficiency and showing how um, I think I think one example was like I think 70 million of the ETH USDC pair was traded last uh, last weekend on Ethereum. And to do that, there needed to be like 40 million in TVL or there didn't need to. But there Wait, was on Solana, you mean? No, no. On Ethereum. On OK, yeah. On Solana, there was like 40 million traded in USDC Seoul and the TVL was one million. So you just have a much more efficient just market. Faster and, and, and yeah. you just don't need as much TVL to facilitate that much because you can have clubs and stuff. You don't purely need to rely on LPs and AMMs. So I, I think there is definitely a narrative driving that. I think um, we're going to continue to see a lot of growth in that area down the road. All right, here's another question, and this was really making me angry. Um, in in um, Gosh, I guess in 2021 when Solana was first on the scene and, and getting big – there was no data, right? The nodes are mega expensive. It's producing a, a, an enormous amount of data per day. I forget at one point someone told me like, like every day it produces like 100 gigabytes or something insane, right? So there was there was none of the crypto data providers had anything on Solana. There was SolScan, which is the sort of main, yeah. main um, Etherscan or Block Explorer. Yeah. It had some data, obviously, but like I couldn't yeah. even get numbers on like, you know, like transactions over time, like yeah. no, nobody had anything, um, partly because of the design decisions on th that are powering the scalability choices. Yeah. Um, is that still the case? Like, can we get data on Solana Definitely. now? Yeah, there's a very robust data ecosystem. You've got teams like Solana Beach, Solana FM, SolScan, uh, Flipside, um, Artemis. There, there's a whole uh, because, and I think because they're starting to see real demand from users for that type yeah. of insight. So that whole area is building out. I actually at Breakpoint there was a great presentation by um, the Solana FM team. They're like a block explorer. Um, of kind of the integrations they've done with artificial intelligence to basically chat GPT, their, their uh, block explorer. And it's, you know, it's crazy. It's, you, you can just type in whatever you want and it'll pull whatever you need. So I think we're seeing a lot more um, transparency. Because um, it is an enormous amount of data to parse and index and serve up metrics. On. It is. Like, it's it crazy. Is. And I think most of it is like hosted on Google Bigtable right now. So I think that is... I think that is probably something that over the next year or two is going to be um, continue to be an area of focus in terms of like, you know, how do we deal with all this? Yeah, because, you know, one of my biggest angles at looking at crypto is show me data, show me adoption. Right? Yeah. Like I don't care if no one's yeah. using something, but I yeah. I become interested as it becomes used. And it, yes. and it was like 
I'm hearing that it's being used and yeah. I can't show it. I can't prove it. So like, you know, and, and that's I, an important feature of blockchains that they're open and transparent. And it's like, if it's transparent, but the thing is like a 900 pound gorilla, you can't like wrap your hands around then Like it doesn't really matter if the data is there. And, and I totally agree. And I, I, I do think one thing is interesting is that I, I think over like the past two years, obviously on-chain activity has been way down. And so a lot of the improvements that we've been talking about have just gone under the radar because nobody's using the chain. But if you are using the chain, you could see those updates and those developments happening in real time. I think, you know, one of the things I said coming out of Breakpoint is the big challenge for Solana going forward is they need to get more on-chain liquidity. And at the time, I had talked about maybe a few things that might improve on-chain liquidity. So there is a huge DeFi airdrop season that's going to be start rolling out in the next few weeks and will probably last six months or so. What is this, new protocols or This is new protocols and some older protocols that have been running basically liquidity mining programs. And, you know, their view is, listen, we have ETH, they have all these tokens, it gave all these people liquidity to do stuff on chain we need to simulate a sibling which is basically what basically everyone has done on ethereum and all the l2s Ex they exactly. all run these types of programs and on solana we haven't yeah. really seen that happen yet so so that was a huge cat or that's a huge event i think that might you know increase on-chain liquidity i think there's there's two exchanges that are launching centralized exchanges that have actually very interesting integrations with blockchain and and they're focused on bringing liquidity to solana and then i think there's just a lot of people that are starting to see you know Obviously, like, you know, there's this reflexivity in crypto. Everyone's starting to see things pick up on Solana. You know, there was like 3.5 million in uh, bridged over to Solana over the past week. You know, we're normally seeing like probably like a few hundred thousand a week. So like activity is starting to pick up. And as a result, people are starting to go on chain on Solana. And they're starting to say, wow, this is kind of like a buttery smooth experience. Like this is the UX that I want as a crypto user. And it's, it, you know, for me, it's, it's very exciting to see people like you saw Kathy uh, Woods go on CNBC yesterday and talk about how she thinks Solana is faster and better. That's very high level. But then you see someone like the the Blockworks guy tweet out yesterday, hey, uh, I just used Jupiter, which is Solana's leading aggregator for the first time. It's the best experience I've ever had in crypto. You see Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of Circle yesterday go, hey, I just used Jupiter for the first time. It's the best experience I've ever used in crypto. So it's really about kind of getting on-chain liquidity so that people start using Solana and see that it does have a great UX, that it is as fast as people say, that it is as cheap as people say. Interesting. Let's step back a little bit. And we talked about, I think we mentioned that, I think at this point now, Solana is sort of, I think many view it, I think I view it as potentially like the third chain, right? And you have, so you have Bitcoin and Ether and Ethereum and it's, ecosystem, I'll say, which is this growing um, amalgamation of layer twos, primarily, right? Mostly optimistic in ZK rollups. And then you have Solana, which explicitly eschews the layered scaling approach. Yeah. I think one of the arguments I've heard, which actually makes a lot of sense to me, is like, well, if you have multiple layer twos, aren't you fragmenting liquidity? Yep. Right? And you're like, oh, I can bridge from here to there. And it's like, well, you, but then you have to bridge. Like, right? It's like not, right? Capital likes capital. And, and bridges it, get hacked all the time. That's true. Bridges yeah. have been one of the most dangerous applications in yeah. crypto, which makes sense because oftentimes they're trying to connect two unlike systems, right? So they're, okay. So in that world, I think it's quite notable that the Solana community continues to grow. Um, and that people are devoted. You really can't say that about other L1s. I mean, most yeah. are are notably declining. Yeah. I mean, actively declining, right? Like, yeah. 
Um, whereas it, it does appear that the community in Solana is growing, and, and of course there's growing interest. Like, do you think that Solana is it competing against Ethereum? Is it competing against Ethereum and all the L2s? Like, yeah, like you know, we're because that Ethereum is very, very clearly focused on this layered scaling approach, yeah. this modular approach. In fact, modularity could be even more fragmented. Yeah, I so it's it's a great question. I I think in my view. Solana is competing mostly with the L2s when it comes to Ethereum, I think, um, and then they're competing with other all L1s. So, um, I mean, everyone knows them all out there. And, and there's actually a few launching next year that I think um, integrate a lot of the design approaches that Solana takes, but do it with an EVM. So I think those are Solana's main like competitors. So all L1s other than ETH and then ETH L2s. And then ETH L2s. And I think, you know, you had Trey Aslanian on here. I think he made a great point, which is like, listen, Solana out does is bet more performant than ETH L2s right now. It's a better experience. So the big risk for Solana is that by they don't have like this like stellar product before ETH L2s get to that status. Right. And and so I, I actually tweeted this the other day. Like I think the benchmark for Solana this chain is it's it's so this sorry this cycle is it's very simple. It's product. They just need products. Things and people want to use. Exactly. It's, they don't need to have a currency. They don't need to go from 600 TPS to 1,000. Yes. They just need like one or two products where people are like, wow, like this is something that I would Can use. Can I tell you one that I've heard of yeah. in the Solana ecosystem that I'm actually quite excited for? Yeah. Um, and it's something I've wanted for probably about seven years um, is Uber on the blockchain. Oh, yeah. And there's a guy, Paul Bohm, who I've actually known for quite a while, who has a startup called Teleport. Yep. Which is a Solana-based ride-sharing app, yeah. right? Um, that is something I would use. I, I would use, first of all, I mean, Uber and Lyft, like ride-sharing apps are an incredible product experience, right? It's never... Do you remember? I don't know. You're younger than me, but I used to have to like call a cab. I was in Boston. Yeah, yeah. The operator would be like, "Yeah, 45 minutes." Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> now it's just like. I mean, I remember when uh, Travis, um, what's his name, uh, Kalanick, uh, yeah. he used to say like, "Push a button, get a ride," like that, get a car, like that. And it is that simple. Yeah. Um, but to me, like, I mean, those companies have a huge take rate. I, 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 I talk to the drivers all the time. Like, I mean, sometimes I think I, I don't know where it stands at all time, but like, they're, they're taking 30 plus percent of the. And and you're like, what service does Uber really offer yeah. the company? In my mind, it's two things. It's the software that we use to connect drivers and riders. Yeah. And it's effectively the background checks on yeah. the drivers. Yeah. But I was always thinking like, well, the software should not be an issue. This is really not that complicated stuff, yeah. right? Peer-to-peer, -peer, yep. you know, I think that could be done. Um, the background checks, you know, couldn't you have like a, a much smaller fee and have a, like say a foundation whose sole purpose it is to conduct background checks? Yeah. Like it seems possible to me. Yeah. I'm not even saying that you don't, you know, some people have said you don't even need the background check. You could literally just rely on reputation. Obviously the cold start problem is a problem there. Cause like, yeah. if I want to start driving for the first time, I have zero rep, rep yeah. uh, and, and I, you know, that, that first time driver could, could be any kind of murderer or whomever. And that's bad. Yeah. Um, but like, couldn't we obfuscate most of that? Do you, have you looked at teleport? Are these, is this what they're doing? This like, is, yeah, that's exa this is exactly what they're, I haven't looked too closely yet. I did watch their presentation at Breakpoint, and you know, I, it, it's exactly what you've laid out and they've been working on it for a long time. And Cause so there are also a lot of like decentralized Ubers. I remember, um, not in this way, but I remember like there were some cities that had banned Uber, like, and so people would just like, there were Facebook groups where you could just be like, need a ride here and somebody <laughs> would come get you. Like that, that emerged in a lot of places yeah. um, where, where these apps were banned. So like, 
it, it's definitely possible. Um, I, I think it's totally possible. And I think actually an interesting thing like about that is it's complementary to other things that are being built on Solana. So um, you could integrate all of these like really fast payment networks that are being spun up on Solana to actually facilitate, you know, maybe you don't need to use Solana blockchain. You There's a product called Hive Mapper that is basically trying to create like a GPS Google map. Exactly. Yeah. So you can be a driver using Teleport. Say, and also, they got the phone. Yeah, exa and they are, exactly. The phone? What's the latest on this phone, this Solana phone? This, what's it, the Saga? The Saga. I think, I think the benchmark for the Saga is not so much like mass adoption right now. It's more like proof of concept, Let's let's just kind of incept this idea. What, what the real part of it is the SMS, the Solana mobile stack aspect of it, which is basically like an open source developer kit that you can build apps to use on things like Android. So I think the phone is kind of trying to like induce demand for developers to build more mobile native applications. And I think we're starting to see traction toward that um, during Solana's annual hackathon called Hyperdrive this year. Um, one of the categories, they had a specific mobile category. And, yeah. um, you know, just that, that hackathon in general, it had, you know, the most participants of any hackathon for Solana ever. So another sign that you're seeing increased developer engagement, you're seeing more developer mindshare, and it's not just going to like building out infrastructure, it's going to building out AI products, to gaming products, D-PIN, payments, mobile, it's, it's, it's all over the board. And that's, that's what I want to see as someone who is interested in seeing Solana grow as a network is I want to see just a large amount of products coming out at all times so that users who are on the network can constantly be trying, iterating, giving feedback, and eventually really do find that product market fit. I like that a lot of what you talk about and, and see out there in the Solana ecosystem is not purely financial. Yes. Um, in use case, that that is interesting. That That's also pretty unique, I would say. Or I think in so. The, I, in, the, in the world of blockchains, right? Um, Lucas, before we wrap, yeah, you know, you were on the podcast uh, when when I had the whole team come on a yeah. couple months ago. Um, but can you tell us your background? How oh, you yeah. got interested in Bitcoin and crypto and yeah, and and I guess Solana too. But like, wh who tell our audience who you are and uh, and and give our you know your your origin story in crypto. yeah, sure. So. Um, it's just a weird story, as with everyone. I I started out uh, I I started out working in finance in New York out of college. Did like an analyst program for two years. Great experience, loved it. But um, I had grown up internationally. Um, I spoke Chinese. I've been taking Chinese since I was in ninth grade. Still do, but used to too. Yes, I sp I spoke it much better then. I still speak it all right now. Um, and. Um, I, after two years, you know, working in finance, I, I knew I wanted to be abroad. So I moved to China. I lived in Beijing for five years and I worked at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace as a, uh, U.S. China foreign policy analyst. So, um, I basically moved there right before Trump got elected and then for five years watched the relationship just kind of crater and go off a cliff. But it was an incredibly, you know, it was, it was an incredible time to be there. It was really interesting being at the kind of the center of all of that. And obviously we're continuing to see those dynamics play out today. After five years, um, kind of knew that I really wanted to be more on the business side of things, not so much on the policy side of things, but, but I do love the research aspect because, you know, I think what's really underappreciated in most lines of works is like getting below the surface level. And that's where you really get an edge. That's where you really find new, exciting, innovative ideas. And so, um, at the time, you know, I, I wasn't like a, a crypto native crypto OG. I just kind of was like held a little bit of crypto and started going up in value. And I was like, 
you know what, like COVID's happening. Uh, I, I actually flew back from China the day that Wuhan shut down by so, accident. So you got, you were in the I was, Yeah, so, so I, you, I was like, I was coming back to the U.S. to look at- you stuck there probably exactly. for I, years. I was coming back to the U.S. to look at MBA programs actually. And I get back the day that Wuhan shuts down, the next day my boss calls me and he goes, hey- Don't return. Don't come back to China. <laughs> Never been, but never went back to China after that. I mean, I, I did go back You've this last back summer because yes. my wife is Chinese. She's the best. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> shout out to Kelly. Um, and so anyway, as I as I started to, God, you really dodged a bullet on I, that on that COVID lockdown because yes. we saw the stuff in China. It was, I don't know what to believe. It was the internet. You never know, but it looked very aggressive. It, lockdown it, situation. It was. I had a lot of friends who were there and kind of stuck it out for a while. But eventually, were they able to leave? Eventually, eventually they were able. Yeah, people were able to leave. It was more of just people kind of like maybe didn't have places to go and think. You know, there's a lot of expats living in China who they right. can't go. You know, so it's tough. Right. Um, but anyway, so I came back. Um, I did my MBA and, uh, before I started my MBA, I kind of had a little free time and I really just started to be like, all right, like if, if I'm invested in these, in this stuff, I should understand what it is. And so I took a, I took like a Coursera course from INSEAD on like crypto blockchain and DeFi gave me kind of these building blocks. And then I had a, I had a buddy who was like, I, I, he like used to do like YouTube streams you know he's like yeah. one of the like but, but great guy you know yeah. love him and he, he was actually you're discounting he, that. he was driving grubhub and streaming driving grubhub so that he would take his profits from grubhub and buy crypto and he wow. was you know like it was Dude, grinding it was grinding and and i just reached out to him i was like hey like i, I kind of use this stuff like and and so you know he he basically introduced me at like the the deep underbelly of crypto so like i, I never started at like the bitcoin eth level he was like Let's go to Polygon. And oh, you went right in. Yeah, you, you know, right the, the dirty <laughs> so, stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so, but that was great. You know, it, it yeah. really showed me like, all right, this is how communities are built in crypto. You know, this is how DeFi happens. This is how you identify trends and narratives. This is how, and and what it really instilled in me is the only way to truly know what's happening is to be actually using these chains, and you never should be discounting any chain until you've tried it. So, I was on Polygon for a while. Um, and then I saw this mint happening on Solana that I thought, you know, the art, literally I was just like, the art looks awesome. Why don't I try it? Did the mint and never looked back. It was, it was the best. Actually the mint went terribly. It was like, you know, like it, it took like 48 hours to actually get it done because the network kept getting congested. Mm -hmm. But once it happened and I started transacting on the network, just the, the difference between using Solana and using any other chain was so extreme. I was like, wow, like this is the user experience, like it's still very rough around the edges, but this is kind of what you need. And so from there, I just, I got very involved. I started out as kind of like an NFT community person, got very involved in NFTs that led me to, you know, get interested in all other areas of the thing. And, um, as I was doing my MBA, I kind of just thought to myself, like, this is what I spend. I'm not even going to my class. You know, this is what I spend all day doing. Yeah. And, and I love reading about it. I love researching it. I love using it. Why is this not what I'm doing full time? And was very fortunate to get connected with you and end up here. And, I, yeah, I should actually you know. remind our audience because Lucas was an intern at Galaxy yes. Research before he graduated from Georgetown yes. MBA. And then, of course, now works at Galaxy Research. But you may remember if you're a longtime Galaxy Brains uh, listener, Lucas was on Galaxy Brands. It's actually yes. your third appearance, I think. Yes, it is. Because you were on in summer 2022 telling us about MakerDAO. Exactly. Um, which uh, is just a another hilariously overly complex and not exactly. <laughs> yes. But that gives a lot of interesting things to talk about. So, um, yes. yeah, well, I, Lucas, thank you for coming um, to Galaxy Brands. And uh, we'll connect again soon. Lucas Chayan from Galaxy Research. Thank you very much, Alex. Good to be on. 
That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks to our guest, Lucas Chayan from Galaxy Research and Bimnet of EB from Galaxy Trading. As always, like I said, if you didn't check out our live show, it's in the feed. It's on our YouTube channel uh, from last week. It was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to Castle Island and PubKey and Galaxy for their support. And um, we'll do it again. And until next time, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.